0: I am one of the pastors and preachers here at The Trails, and it's a joy to be open up God's words with you as we are wrapping up this series in the book of Exodus, which seems like weird words to come out of my mouth. Uh, We started this book back in October uh, of last year, um, and I I was thinking about it again as I was getting back in and, and writing this very last sermon as we're kind of capping it off, that if we were to go back a year ago, the beginning of October, and I was going to say, all right, everyone, take out a pencil and write down everything that you know about the book of Exodus." Exodus. And I wonder what we would have written a year ago. Uh, Probably very little practically that we might've known about the book of Exodus, maybe the first 18 chapters or so, right? Especially the events surrounding the judgments of God against Egypt and how Moses leads them out. If nothing, you might have Charlton Heston in your mind saying, let my people go. Uh, Or like the Prince of Egypt, that might be rolling through your mind. Uh, Maybe the Passover, maybe the Red Sea. In fact, Um, If you would have written down everything that we know, we we probably wouldn't have even remembered that the very first time we see the Ten Commandments is found in the book of Exodus. That might have just skipped our minds. We definitely would not have written down that there's like 15 chapters about the tabernacle uh, and how all these instructions about the tabernacle, uh, predominantly because those are typically skimmed over. Right? If we have a Bible reading plan, we're like, oh, the tabernacle, yay, and we just kind of skim over that very quickly without giving a lot of time and attention to it, though as we've seen over the last couple of months, how rich uh, those texts are. Now, but honestly, if you, if you would have told any of your friends, you're like, yeah, I'm going to this new church, they're preaching through the book of Exodus, they might have looked at you and said, why? The book of Exodus, isn't that one of the like, yeah, it's profitable, but it's not really important? Uh, I don't. I don't know how your preachers could like, preach through the book of Exodus, especially at the second half. I like, do you mean you preached through the book of Exodus? Uh, and, and you might have wondered how in the world we were going to study those texts and then understand the context and then find all those well-worn paths that lead us and prepare us to the gospel, the life, death, ministry, burial, resurrection of Jesus, just as Jesus said it does. But you're looking at Exodus and you're like, I don't know how this fits into that. And, and yet it's my prayer as we are wrapping up this study that we may do so joyfully and with a greater understanding of how this wonderful book points to Jesus with every text. Some of them, as we found out, are ones that require us to go deep into the mine and to mine deeply and richly and for a long time. But as we said, there is gold in those hills and we have found it week in and week out as every text of the Bible is used by God to point to this overarching story demonstrating God's redemptive purposes in the world. And our study has reminded us that the Bible is indeed inerrant and inspired and infallible and trustworthy and sufficient and, yes, profitable. And in our future reading and discussing and thinking about the book of Exodus, uh, hopefully this will not be the last time you ever read the book of Exodus in your entire life, uh, but in our future reading, discussing and thinking, uh, we need to remember, as we have seen, that the real drama of this book The real drama is not how is Israel going to escape Pharaoh? We know that because God dispatches with Pharaoh fairly quickly and fairly easily with no help of the Israelites at all. Rather, what we see unfold in this drama throughout the book of Exodus is how can a holy God dwell in the midst of these unholy people? It's kind of like we read this like, how in the world? These people are very unholy. We just spent a couple of weeks studying about their great sin against God. They hear God's voice audibly, and then they say, let's worship this golden calf that we made. And you're like, what? And yet we've seen how we are just like them. As people. And and we've seen how this book begins to answer the question through the covenants and the tabernacle instructions of how can an unholy people dwell in the midst of a holy God, but we're still left longing, even at the end of this book, for the coming of Jesus. And isn't it interesting that maybe for the first time, we now see references in the New Testament back to these events, and we see them with fresh eyes. Does that happen to any of you in some of your daily Bible reading over the last year? You you read something in the New Testament and just flashes back to something that we've studied in the book of Exodus, and you're know, like, this makes more sense now. And, and that's the aim of us walking through books of the Bible as God's people, because it will not necessarily be what you most want to hear. It will not be the five steps of being a better dad or the 10 steps of better intimacy in your relationship, but it will cause greater joy in your life as you come to know, understand, and believe in the God of the Bible and understand how the whole Bible fits together, telling this great story of God's redemption of his people. And so uh, we ought to, uh, as, as New Testament writers uh, explain to us, we ought to do that. This isn't just something fun that we can do, but this is something that's expected of us as we're reading through the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament demonstrates why it is profitable for us to read through the book of Exodus as it connects some of those dots for us. It points out how much we have in common with these Israelites. So as we've talked about, just as they were slaves in Egypt, suffering under the bondage of Pharaoh. So the Bible explains that we were born into this world as slaves of sin and slaves of unrighteousness, that we are born as an unholy people who rebelled against God as we wanted to be like him. We wanted to decide what is good and what is evil for ourselves. We wanted to be like him, take his place. So because of that, because of our, the first sin of our first parents. Now we are plunged in this world, where we're, we're born into this world as rebels who rebel against God, as those who are enemies of God from birth and by nature, deserving nothing but his judgment to come upon us because of our unholiness. In fact, the Bible explains that we were dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, and unable to please God and without hope. Not only that, we had a spirit of disobedience in our chests, leading us to hate the very things of God and to love sin, it, kind of like, like Stockholm Syndrome, right, where, they, where you fall in love with your captor. So we have fallen in love with our sin, and we love our sin. We hate God. But God, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, has interceded by the work of God the Spirit in our lives. Think back to when that happened for you as Christians shared their lives and the gospel with you. Through their faithfulness, as they preached to you the good news of Jesus, either as your parents did so or as a friend did so over dinner. and That was an awkward conversation, but you have first, for the first time ever heard the gospel and God worked in your heart to give you faith to believe there is a God and you are actually a sinner and you really do deserve judgment. And yet there is this good news of hope through Jesus for you and you repented of sin and believed upon Christ? Do you remember that? How God single-handedly saved you by his grace and for his glory? Friend, your story is a lot like the Israelites, a lot like it, So, so that we might, as we have been talking about, then become who we are as his people after he has liberated us from unrighteousness and sin so that God also might dwell in our midst by faith. In us, yes, by his spirit, but also in us as a church body. It's an astounding and it's a beautiful thing that God has come to be with us. Thus, with every chapter that we have explored in our study throughout the book of Exodus, my, my joy in it, I don't know about you, my, my joy has just been increased in the gospel with every single text that we have walked through. Now, I pray that yours has been as well. And, and it's funny because initially you might be walking through a text and you're like, no joy here. And then we walk through it and you're like, nope, never mind. There it is. And, and this, this has been my, my experience. I pray it's been yours. This has helped us see once again that though we were once not a people, now, by grace and through Jesus, we all now, though we are from different ethnicities and backgrounds and languages and cultures, that we now are all through Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as First Peter 2, 9 explains and so, as we bring this study to a close, we have a couple of verses left in the in this book, uh, and they are beautiful. As we just read, we have kind of this momentous occasion where where everything that God said and told them to do that we've talked about over the last number of months, they do, which is like this huge. Praise God. And that and, uh, and, what and we've been talking about, this aim of God for the last year and a half, we, we see this momentous occasion, okay, or sorry, for the last, almost better part of the year, where we see this momentous occasion where God really does come and dwell in the midst of his people. We've been preparing for it, preparing for it, preparing for it, preparing for it, boom, there it was. And it, so it's here in seeing this where we see the aim of God in liberating his people is that he might dwell in their midst as his people. And that's exactly what we see happening in those last uh, four verses of Exodus chapter 40. So that while they were a people living in tents, that God would have their tent among them. While they were a people on the move, he too would live in like a mobile home with them. So that whether they stopped for the night or a longer period, or whether they were on the march, the Lord himself was at the center of their lives. Thus they are as God's people with God, and he dwells in their midst. And so I've named this last sermon on the book of Exodus, Emmanuel, a word that simply means God with us, a word that you probably know more so from the New Testament, uh, but I borrowed it and threw it back over here because this is exactly what we see. God is with his people. And I think it's a fitting conclusion to God's intent throughout the, the entire book. And a really important concluding word, given everything that Israel has been through. One last thing before we dive in. I want you to think back to how this book began. Do you remember how this book began a long time ago? My hair was a little bit darker then. Yours probably was as well. This book began with Israel serving Pharaoh. Remember that snaky crowned king over Egypt who thought that he was a god in their midst? And yet now we, we look back and remember how Yahweh brought salvation to his people by judging Egypt so that he, the only true and living God, might dwell in their midst as a people that they would be his people and he would be their God. And so it's seeing the end of the book. We, we know how the story ends. It helps us look back and connect the dots all the way through to see the intention of God to dwell with his people in the midst of this entire book as God leads, guides, protects his people through the cloud of his presence and as they learn to become who they are as they subject himself to his word. Right? It's kind of like knowing the end uh, of the, the original three Star Wars of who Luke's dad is. Then you you watch the first one, and the whole time you're thinking, I know who his dad is. Like, it changes everything. Likewise, knowing God's intention to dwell in the midst of his people shapes how we view the entire book of Exodus. It's not a boring, stale, ancient, messy, dry book. Rather, it is a life-giving, beautiful, wonderful book. And I'm thankful that we've had uh, time to study through it. So let's, let's read our, first, uh, our last few verses together. And as we do, we're going to see a, the, that fitting conclusion again, verses 34 to 38 is what we're going to be studying, uh, which is a text that comforts us and yet also perplexes us as it points us forward to a future day. Did you see anything in there that was perplexing to you? If not, I will point it out. I'm going to put a neon spotlight on it. So let's pray, uh, and then I'll show you what I mean. So, Father, again, we come to you asking that you would be in our midst as we open your word, that by your spirit, you'd help us understand. I pray that you give us eyes to see, uh, minds to comprehend, hearts that are soft. God, we know that apart from your work in our life, this would be unprofitable. But by your spirit, through your word, for the glory of, of your name, in and through the gospel of Jesus, this is a profitable time. So we pray, God, that you would move in our hearts and lives. And we ask that in Jesus' great name. Amen. And to begin our study of these last four verses, I want us to actually begin by looking at the very last bit of verse 33. Look with me at the very last bit of verse 33. It reads, so Moses finished the work. After that, if you've been reading through the whole book of Exodus, you'd have gone, ah. <sighs> It would have been a wonderful thing. Moses finished the work. Thus, as James read for us a moment ago, chapter 40, we see everything that God commanded Moses to oversee in the building of the tabernacle and the blueprints given in chapters 25 to 30 to 31. We see how the project is accomplished in chapters 35 to 40. Accomplishing those three main desires that we've touched on. Firstly, that God would dwell in their midst. And there need to be a holy people. And thirdly, that God is their king. As the entire camp, remember, is centered around the tent of God. And so this little verse, verse 33b is is incredibly important as a summary statement, for Moses did exactly as God told him, and Israel had done exactly as they had been told by the mouth of Moses. They brought that redemption money. They used all the skills uh, that the Spirit had given them to make all of these intricate details, and they set it all up, and it's working, or about to. We'll see that in Leviticus, but that immediately brings us to verse 34 34 reads, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this would have been a momentous occasion, right? This is the culmination of everything that they have been longing for. Everything, even back when, when God told Moses in chapter three that he's gonna go and liberate God's people and he's gonna be the spokesman so that his people may serve him, that he may be with them. Now we see the fulfillment of everything that this book has been working for. God is coming to dwell in their midst, It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. It's hugely momentous. And as we said, all the book of Exodus has been working up to this exact moment. In fact, all the Bible, from the drastic fall in the Garden of Eden up to this point, this has been the aim of what we are working towards, where God would once again dwell in the midst of his covenant people. And here it is in Exodus chapter 40. And we think about, too, about how all of this was almost forfeited right by Israel's great sin of the golden calf with their hearts longing for Egypt and wanting to jettison Moses as their leader, as their spokesman, and yet how God had demonstrated his steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember his long-nosed patience as he renewed the covenant with them and then empowered them by his spirit with wisdom to work and to build this tabernacle. And now the project being completed according to his blueprint, God sanctifies it. His glory's presence comes upon it as this glory cloud comes and covers over the tent and it fills the temple. Which has been something that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus as this glory cloud is used throughout the book to symbolize God's active and tangible presence among his people. You remember that? Seen it over and over and over again. So, so if you want to reflect with me, I want to think about where we have seen this before. So, kind of like if you're watching one of those old, old sitcoms, the very end, the last couple of episodes, like Seinfeld. They don't shoot any new stuff. They just say, do you remember when this happened? And then they just go back, and it's like, this scene, and this scene, and this scene, and this scene. This is of be what we're going to do for a moment, thinking about this glory cloud as it comes up in the storyline throughout the book of Exodus, as God has tangibly led his people in this manifestation of his presence among them. So we first saw this, if you remember, back in chapter 13. Do you remember this? This strange pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night just shows up. As they are escaping and leaving Egypt to lead them. And we talked about how comforting this cloud would be. Do you remember if you, if you were one of those Israelites and you had escaped and you're in your tent and, and you wake up in the middle of the night and you wonder, was that a dream? Or did that really happen? You walk out your tent, your tent flap opens, you look out and you see this burning pillar of fire and you're like, nope, never mind. We, uh, we, we were liberated. And if you ever doubted, you just open your tent flap and yep, there it is again right by day a cloud by night pillar of fire it would have been this great comfort for them and so uh we we talked about that about how this cloud is is what we talked about a theophany a visible manifestation of the presence of god in the midst of his people and that god led them and guided them by that cloud and then we saw in chapter 14 you remember that this cloud of god's presence that would lead them it actually turned around and went behind them and uh Where the army of the Egyptians were as they were trying to come in to slaughter the Israelites, this cloud went before them and behind them and threw the the Egyptians into pitch black darkness. Thus God, by his visible presence with his people, protects his people from oncoming disaster in a pretty phenomenal way while he opens a way through the Red Sea Road and they walk through on dry ground. And then the Egyptians try to follow them and the waters that they pass through that demonstrate that they are the baptized people of God come crashing down upon them and they come under the, the watery judgment of God, similar to Genesis chapter six with the flood. We also then see the glory cloud in chapter 16 as God hears of the grumbling of his people and they hungered in the wilderness. So after they grumbled, do you remember they longed for those meat pots in Egypt? So in that moment, God spoke to Moses telling him that the people will have meat and bread. And then we read in Exodus 16, 10, that the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud and they had bread and meat that evening. Thus, God's cloud provided food for them. I don't know how the cloud did that, but it's the Lord, so it did. Uh, And then, of course, you remember in Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. Do you remember it's wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Then in chapter 24, we saw that when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with the Lord, the cloud covered the whole mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. See that chapter 24, verses 15b to 16a. And then it was also in Exodus 34, how God showed Moses his glory. Do you remember? As we read, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, 34.5. And all this by way of reminder to say that throughout the book of, books of Exodus, we have seen this glory cloud, this visible presence of God amongst his people as this visible manifestation of the very presence of God in the midst of his people, leading, protecting, providing for them, while at other times causing them to tremble out of a holy and reverent fear, as this cloud demonstrated the very presence of the only true and living God and that he is holy. Thus it is here in 34, verse 34, when the glory cloud comes and settles upon the tabernacle. And we understand that the very presence of God, the glory of God is settling on the tabernacle, doing exactly what God promised. And he's dwelling with his people in this glorious moment, just transforms this tent, this tabernacle into like this mini Mount Sinai. into a a mini garden of Eden that that goes with God's people as the presence of God will go before and lead them from place to place and persistently be the reminder of God's presence that Yahweh is with his people. He is their God, they are his people, and they are known as his people because his presence is among them. Thus, if we ever wonder, if, if they ever wondered, is God really with us or not? As I mentioned, they need only look up to lift up their eyes and look, God will not forsake them. He is dwelling in their midst. It's a wild moment. But, but it's also a moment that makes verse 35 all the more perplexing. Did you notice verse 35 and how strange it is in light of God's glory coming and everything we've been talking about and everything we've been promised? We read there, verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Isn't that strange? Like, from from the way this is written, it seems that Moses probably tried to get in, but just couldn't, right? Like, he's unable, and the text tells us why. It's because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, thus Moses is not allowed to enter, which seems strange, right? The Lord had come to his tent, his tabernacle, but he wasn't accepting any visitors. He was home, but he's not answering the door. You know, like many of us, when the doorbell rings, we hide. You do that. I know you do. Here, God is home. Moses is not allowed to come in. Reminding us a couple of things. Firstly, Matthew Henry notes that this reminds us that Moses must wait on God, God's invitation to invite him in. That's very important. But, but it also is interesting because if anyone should be able to stand before God, right? if anyone of the Israelites can approach him, wouldn't we think that it would be Moses? Like if anybody just has carte blanche... I get to get in. Wouldn't it be Moses? Maybe Aaron, but definitely Moses. And yet Moses isn't allowed in. He can't come in. Thus, even here in these verses, the whole final scene works to remind us that the real drama, as we mentioned, is not how are the Israelites going to escape Pharaoh, but rather how are these sinful, unholy people, Moses included, going to dwell in the midst of a holy God. That's kind of like a really good cliffhanger in one of your most famous or favorite books or TV series. The book of Exodus ends with a very perplexing question because the book of Exodus ends, and guess what? Moses is still not allowed in. It just leaves you hanging, and you're like, what is going on? Right, we might wonder, well, how is this entire arrangement supposed to work? I mean, didn't I just spend like 10 minutes explaining to you that God's aim is to dwell in the midst of his people, and yet now the time comes, and yet God's like, not home. Come back later. And like, like, what is happening yet yet one of the last things we read here is that he's not allowed in what it and if moses can't have access how do the israelites have access and how does holy god then dwell in the midst of these people and doesn't god actually want to dwell with his people what is happening and this question will not be resolved until leviticus chapter 9 moses is a great book writer He, he gets to the end and you're like cliffhanger and you have to keep reading and then you keep reading through and you're like why am i reading all these sacrifices and Leviticus one to nine, and then you get to the end of Leviticus nine and you're like, oh, there it is. Finally, resolution. This is what we read in Leviticus chapter nine, verse 22 to 23. It says, then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering, listen up, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And then Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. The book of Exodus is fascinating because Moses and Aaron are left, as I mentioned, forbidden from entering the tabernacle until the sacrifices are mentioned in Exodus 29 and then Leviticus 1 to 9 are actually fulfilled. Thus, Moses can't go in even though he is the best of them. Aaron cannot go in even though he is the high priest. Neither, Neither of them can go in until the sacrifices have been made. Thus, what we see even in this moment is that there are conditions to approaching the dwelling place of God, the tent of meeting, to commune with God as God has prescribed. And there is only one way to come into the presence of God, and it is through these sacrifices. Blood must be shed as a sin offering, making atonement. Remember, one in the place of another. Or else, no communion with God can be had which reminds us that Israel's communion with God in the Mosaic Covenant is based on the sacrificial system, the the innocent blood of the animal standing in the place of the guilty Israelite. The Israelite is pardoned and forgiven once the blood has been spilled on their behalf, but not before. And this even includes Moses and Aaron and every single person who would ever approach God. Thus, Israel can only approach God as they have believed upon God's word That this sacrifice stood condemned in their place for their sin. Thus it is not a covenant of works, but a covenant of faith. They believe that God's word is true. So they do what God has prescribed and the blood of the sin offering covers over them as God's people. And the same is true for us. See, the question that we ought to ask then is the same question that demands them is how can you and I as unholy people, how can we approach a holy God and have communion with him? How do we do that? We know that it's through faith in the promise that Jesus' blood was poured out as our sin offering. He offered up his life, taking upon himself our judgment so that our sin might be atoned for. Thus, This is not a new concept when we get to the New Testament, but a fulfillment of the storyline of God. That's what everything is working towards. It's why when Jesus first shows up on the scene, what does John the Baptist look at him and say? What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Strange, isn't it? Passover, death, sin offering vocabulary immediately heralded. It is why Jesus has come. Isn't it fascinating that John the Baptist didn't say, look, there's Jesus, a really great prophet with that says wonderful things. Oh, look, there's the man who builds hospitals. Oh, look, there's the guy who X, Y, Z. Nope. The Lamb of God takes away the very sin of the world. See, this is not some newfangled idea in Christianity, as progressive Christians like to claim. The idea that that we are atoned for before God as Jesus stands condemned in our place, suffering the the penalty for our sin as our substitute, that we may have atonement, one in the place of another. This is not a newfangled idea, something that the reformers made up or theologians in the 18th or 19th century. No, this is how God answers the question throughout the entire Bible of how do an unholy people have uh, a holy God dwell in their midst? Is only by a sin offering. It's a beautiful thing. See, under the Mosaic covenant, unholy people were made holy by faith in the word of God and in the blood that was spilt out in their place. Thus, Israelites could only approach God by faith in God's word and by offering those sacrifices. And now, under the new covenant, instituted by Jesus's once-for-all sacrifice, sin offering in our place, we trust in the word of God and in his blood poured out in our place as we look back on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as our substitute, as our sin offering. And we come by faith believing that Jesus is our true and better sin offering. Our Passover lamb, who for the joy set before him laid down his life in our place, suffering for our sake so that we who are unholy can be made holy as he stands condemned in our place, facing the wrath of the father against our sins so that we who do not deserve to be holy We who do not deserve to be in the presence of a holy God are made holy. He makes us holy. This is the whole intention of why Jesus, God the Son, lays humanity alongside of his divinity and steps into time in the first place so that you and I who are rebels against God, sinners, unholy people might enter the presence of a holy God. We only come on the basis of our faith in God's word, our belief that Jesus stood condemned in our place for our sin as our sin offering, him in our place. taking upon himself the judgment of God against our sins as our spotless lamb, our perfect innocent substitute so that we who are guilty might go free huh. that is our only hope in life and in death it is, is that we belong body and soul to jesus and he stood in our place thus this text which starts out as perplexing it looks forward It leaves us cliffhanger, waiting, how will this get resolved? And and it has a, a partial fulfillment in Leviticus chapter nine, but then it looks even further down the road throughout the annals of history to a perfect spotless sin sacrifice that would one day come so that an unholy people like you and I might have confidence to approach the throne of grace with confidence, that we are accepted not on the basis of our righteous living, not on the basis of how great we are or how religious we are or moral we are, but rather we come professing the spotless perfection of Jesus and his substitutionary death in our place is our only hope, which is encouraging because friends, it helps us understand that God is not sitting up in heaven waiting for us to pay off our debts. He's not looking at you saying, be better, try harder by being good enough or religious enough to earn his forgiveness as if God is waiting for you to do the work. Then he'll meet with us. No, rather we are confronted with the reality that, that through God's word, that we can never be good enough. We can never be good enough to enter the presence of God on our own efforts or make ourselves clean by being good enough. Clean, moralistic perfection is unattainable by us. And this is why Jesus, God the Son, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time in the first place to do the work to live the life that we ought to have lived and suffer and died as our substitute. One of my uh, my friends, uh, he likes to use this illustration. It's a little crass, but it's fun. Uh, And uh, and he said, imagine that you've got a glass of milk and you're really thirsty and you're eating wonderful cookies out of the oven. And uh, you go to drink that milk and before you do, someone looks at you and says, oh, by the way, you should just know that before you drink that, there is one drop of human pee in that milk, but the rest of it's fine. And he's like, would you drink it? He's like, no. I hope not. I hope the answer is no. And, uh, and some of you parents might be like, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, it depends on how thirsty I am and if we have any more milk. But hopefully the answer is no. Hopefully it's no. Uh, and that, my, my friend, is, is what our sin does to us. You may live a life that is 99.999%. Awesome, holy, in accordance with God's word, and yet you are stained, and your stain ruins everything. We all need God's great kindness. We all need his forgiveness and mercy because we are all stained beyond beyond comparison. So just as Matt said this, he said this last week, This this Mosaic covenant was a covenant of veils. Thus, in today's text, Moses is unable to enter into the tent of meeting, to pass through the veils because the glory cloud has settled on it. And this is, this is why the covenant that Jesus makes surpasses the covenant of Moses, because this will never be our experience as God's people, which is good to know, brother and sister, that you you will never be forbidden or unable to enter the presence of God. Because Jesus has passed beyond the veil by his blood and secured our welcome and he beckons us and we may always come. You don't get to come because you've been good enough. You don't get to come because you've prayed enough. You don't get to come because you went to church enough. You don't get to come because of any reason besides his amazing grace extended to you in Jesus. And the good news is you will never be prohibited from the presence of God ever again. Never Nothing that you could do could earn God's acceptance of you or God's pleasure or your salvation and nothing that you can do can lose it. Do you know why? Your salvation is not dependent on your works but on Jesus's works, not yours. Thus, you may always come to him. Thus, if you're wondering, man, you don't know about this though in my life, what could you have done that Jesus has not covered Fully by his death in your place? The answer is nothing. So you may always come to him. Thus, why why in some of our interpersonal relationships, like if you sin against someone, you might be like, oh, I'm gonna avoid that person. We, We never have to do so with God. He's not waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting to just hammer us when we come to him. Rather, his door is always open now through Christ. Isn't that good? That holy God will look at you, unholy you, and say, come. Don't clean yourself up. Come. Believing upon Christ, come. We're not prone to believing that because in our sin, we we feel like we need to do something to earn God's kindness or to do enough to assuage him, but we don't need to, don't, don't let your unholiness stop you from admitting your sin and believing the gospel and trusting that Jesus was good enough to cover over that sin or repenting from it and trusting and believing upon him and his death in your place to cover over that sin. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is also the offer for you as well. God is beckoning you to come to him. Don't keep your distance from him. He's not a God that says I'm home, but you are not allowed to come. Rather, he has a door. There is a way by which you can have a right relationship with him. And it's by admitting your sin, asking for forgiveness, believing upon Jesus' perfect spotless record in your place that he took the wrath of God the Father in your place that you might be always welcomed in. This this text, verse 34, it, it perplexes, or verse 35 perplexes us, but it also points forward to a future day and to a future better day through the death of Jesus as our sin offering and extends hope to us as well. And then before we close, there's just one last thing I want to point out for us from Exodus chapter 40. And it's found in those last three verses where Israel is reminded of the ongoing presence of God with them as a people. Uh, let's read that. It says, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all all their journeys and i just love this imagery that 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 god led his people from one place to another that this would be how god would lead israel in all of their wilderness wanderings which touches on what we said a moment ago you know what's fascinating about these men and women all the way throughout their wilderness wanderings all 40 years god would lead them and his presence would be in their midst you know what's fascinating about that They're only in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. And yet their sin doesn't forfeit the presence of God in their midst. He leads them, even in their sinfulness. His presence doesn't depart from them. Isn't that fascinating? That blew my mind for a moment when I thought about it this week, just meditating over that and praising God. Like, what, what grace? because they will rebel against him again. They will not trust his promises and every single one of them will die in the wilderness, but his presence does not depart from them because they are his people. Because they come to him by sacrificing the sin offerings and believing his word. It's a beautiful thing. As one pastor put it then, the rest of their whole life, what they did was rest, wait and watch, keep their eyes turned upward and fixed on their presiding God. And that guidance is just one aspect of their daily life lived in the presence of God. Thus, as we see in Exodus, the God who sought them and bought them with his redeeming blood, as we sing, is the God who promises to guide and lead and dwell in the midst of his people. And yet it's in a veiled way still, right by a cloud. Manifesting the presence of God in their midst, creating this longing in the text for a future day where the veil would be removed, a day when God himself would come in their midst as a people, which happens, of course, as Jesus lays humanity alongside its divinity and steps into time. But it's, it's interesting that even here, even in Jesus' first coming, his first advent, he is veiled, as we talked about last week. Yet he is veiled until his death and resurrection, when the good news of, of the gospel gives sight to the spiritually, spiritually blind. So that we may see and understand the gospel, repent and be saved from the wrath that we have earned. And yet think about the contrast for a moment about Exodus chapter 40 and what we know about from the life and ministry of Jesus. For example, when the fullness of God's presence comes down upon the tabernacle, no one is allowed in because they are unholy. God is holy and God is unapproachable. Think about that in contrast to Jesus's ministry. Jesus's incarnation and ministry, the holy God takes on human flesh and steps into time. And he, the very presence of God in the midst of his people, seeks out sinners, dines with those who are unholy, beckons them to the table, shares with them the gospel that they might have new life. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. He spent time with them, he got close with them who were unholy, called them to repentance, demonstrating the Father's steadfast love for unholy sinners, just like us. Thus, while Israel has this glory cloud in their midst, leading them throughout the wilderness wanderings, we know that the glory cloud dwelt with God's people for a season, but it created this longing to have uninhibited access to God. A longing that the prophets wrote about, and that's fulfilled in the New Testament age, as God the Spirit is given to indwell every genuine Christian, convicting us of sin, convincing us of the gospel, preserving and persevering us, and empowering us to do what we cannot do, which is to live lives for His glory as His holy people. We have a few base camp episodes uh, on the personal work of God the Spirit if you want to explore that further. But but I want us to be comforted with the wonderful news of Second Corinthians chapter one verses twenty one to twenty two which says, and it is God who established established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A word that means a down payment or an earnest. When you have earnest money, for example, when you buy your house, So the spirit within every Christian is our guarantee that we have been purchased by Jesus, that we belong to the Father by grace and through faith. Thus, while Israel had the tabernacle and then the temple and all their splendor reminding them that God's presence is with them, right? They could go out of their tent, tent flap opens. They could see the cloud anytime they doubted and be reminded that God had not abandoned them. While they had the tabernacle, we have something greater. We have the finished work of Jesus and the indwelling of the Spirit living in us as a constant reminder that we are not our own. Rather, we have been bought with a price. Thus, which is better? What is better than a glory, cloud-filled tabernacle? Our very bodies, who are the temple of God, as we are filled by God the Spirit, convicted of sins, convinced of the truth of the gospel, and empowered for gospel ministry that the Father is predestined for all of us to walk in. And so Christian brother and sister, I want you to rest assured today that God is with you. He's with you. His spirit has been given to you and now Christ dwells with you in the halls of your heart by faith as Ephesians chapter three, verse 17 tells us. And he will never forsake you. In the same way that he wandered with the Israelites, even in their discipline for 40 years, Christian, he will walk with you. His spirit will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So what we read in God's word is that the Spirit will never be taken from us. The Spirit is our down payment, our earnest. He is proof that we belong to God the Father through the atoning work of Jesus. Thus, God the Spirit is with us, and that is better than having a tabernacle that we can go to or a cloud that we may see in the sky. And we are promised that we, as the chosen people of God, as we go to and fro throughout our lives, that he will be with us in all of life's journeys until we reach the end of our days either when our eyes close in death or when Jesus' kingdom comes crashing down upon the earth and all things are made new. He will never take his spirit from us. We are his. And though we may not always feel like he is with us, maybe we haven't, I don't feel, as I mentioned, that we prayed enough or read the Bible enough for us to feel that he's indwelling us, though you may wish that you had a cloud that you could just look at, God says it's better that the Spirit indwells us and empowers us. He is our earnest. So if we feel discouraged or if we feel like we've been abandoned or maybe if we wonder how a holy God can dwell within the halls of a heart like ours, we need to look at his promises to remember the gospel, to remember the empty tomb, to open his word and see the end of the story. And be reminded as we look at our lives that the end of the story shapes how we view where we're at in the story. To remember the cross, remember the tomb, remember the gospel. We have a foretaste of this now in our lives through the indwelling presence and power of the spirit and the promise of Jesus that we see in Matthew 28, 20. Do you remember those words? They're beautiful. We read, and behold, I'm with you always. It's the very end of the age. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this is what's available to you. I mean, the bad news of the Bible, of course, is that you are a sinner, a rebel against God and his kingdom as you wanted to go your own way and make your own rules, refusing to submit to God's laws and wanting to be like God, deciding good and evil for yourself. And the Bible explains, as we mentioned, that what you've earned for this rebellion is death, physical death in this life, but an eternal death where you'll spend eternity future suffering under the judgment of God against your sins. But God has made a way for you who are unholy to be made holy. For you to receive forgiveness for your sins. And as we've mentioned, it doesn't come by trying harder or doing the work or making yourself acceptable. Rather, as you hear of the holiness of God and your sinfulness, as you hear about the good news of Jesus, that he lived the life you should have lived and then stood condemned in your place, God gives us faith to believe that this is true and we become convicted of our sin and we know that it's true. So do you believe that you have sinned against God? That you deserve his wrath and his judgment for your sins. Do you believe that Jesus is God the Son, that He stepped into time to show us the Father, to live this perfect, sinless life? And then then He chose to stand condemned in your place as your sin offering. And he rose from the dead three days later that you might have forgiveness. Do you trust in that? Do you believe in that? And will you come and believe upon him today? He's, he's, He's the door is open. He's waiting. You can come, but only through the door of Christ. Only through the door of Christ will you, you who are unholy, be made holy. Only through the door of Christ, you who deserve judgment can find grace and pardon. Any other way will only lead to eternity of judgment and wrath. Friend, God has made a way for you to be saved. Will you come and believe upon Jesus? And Christian brother and sister, I think for me, This week, thinking about God being with us is is a beautiful reminder that we are unholy and deserving of nothing other than his judgment, and yet because of Jesus, we can have grace and forgiveness. It means that we can walk through the dark providences of life knowing that we are not alone. (laughs) God is with us. When we don't feel like it's true, he's with us. The fact remains the same. And then we have a local church, men and women who pray for us, who lay hands on us, who weep with us, who rejoice with us, who disciple us and discipline us as they walk along beside us and hold us up. We don't have strength to do it on our own. There is a wealth of comfort and joy in knowing that God is with us. That there is a never-ending, never-stopping, perpetual love of God for us in Christ. And what joy we often forfeit in this life when we forget those wonderful truths. That nothing can befall us that does not come through his providential hand. Thus we can rest assured that God will never leave us. He'll never leave us. Spirit it is your guarantee. You have been bought by Jesus. And the Spirit is uniquely placed to you in our church, brothers and sisters, that we might spurn one another on to love and to good works. As we use our gifts to bless and encourage and equip one another. And then as well in this province, in this season, that we may share our lives and the gospel with others as missionaries in our culture. So brothers and sisters, let us continue to become who we are. Just because we're done with the book of Exodus, that doesn't mean we to quit becoming who we are. Rather, we get to keep becoming who we are as God's people, guided by God's word, dependent on the gospel, empowered by the spirit, putting to death the idols in our lives and living under the reign of King Jesus, looking forward to the promised land while spending our lives for his glory here upon the earth, that we might share with as many people as possible this good news that they might also repent of their sins and rejoice with us in Jesus and long for the coming day. Let's pray.